You're listening to Trek FM. There was a little bar in Mill Valley where all the Starfleet trainees used to go. The 602 Club. You know it. <laughs> I was there more times than I can remember. It is just a delay. That's all it is. All major theme parks had delays. When they opened Disneyland in 1956, nothing worked. Yeah, but John, if the Pirates of the Caribbean breaks down, the pirates don't eat the tourists. Welcome, everyone, to Trek FM's local watering hole, where hosts from the network drop by. And you know we've got friends all the time just coming in, ordering drinks, and I hope that you have grabbed a chair, something special, because we're going to have, I think, just uh, an all-out blast tonight. Uh, You might call this a blast from the past. Um, we've got, uh, Will, Will is sitting back here with me in 602. How's it going, Will? It's good. When you said past, I was going to throw in that joke, 65 million years in the past, but I thought it was too easy of a joke, but I just made it. So, uh, you know what? I mean, <laughs> we're going to let it slide. Um, apparently Ruby's just lubricated you a little bit more than you thought. It's okay. We'll let it go. Andy, it's great to have you back in the 602 and Hey, welcome to the network. For the first time, as you know, you guys now, Women at Warp, part of the network. Yeah, it's really exciting. Thanks for having me. You're welcome. I'm glad you're back. So, well, if you guys haven't guessed, we are going to start the uh, retrospective. We kind of look back at Jurassic Park getting ready for Jurassic World that's going to be coming out in just a couple of weeks. And I was really excited. I mean, Honestly, anytime I have an excuse, and I put that in quotes, even though you guys can't see it on the podcast, dink, dink, is that visiting this film is is never something that I consider like a chore having to do. Like, I could watch Jurassic Park, I think, anytime, anywhere, for any reason. And so I loved the fact that I had this reason to need to go back and watch it. And I was wondering for you guys, because I definitely have one, what your JPS was or your Jurassic Park story and kind of your first time to see it. And I feel like, you know, people of our age all kind of have one. So, Andy, for you, what was your kind of first experience with the film? I honestly don't remember the first time I saw it. Um, I feel like I've always seen it. But uh, it was one of the first movies I had on VHS. Um so I, ah, nice. I, I, I'm pretty sure I watched it a million times as a kid and it actually has a really uh, special place in my heart. Um, when I was growing up, my mom being a single mom, she had to work a lot. So sometimes I was home by myself and I would get scared mm-hmm. and for whatever reason, so you turn on Jurassic I would Park? watch Jurassic Park. Yeah. And That's you know, awesome. <laughs> you would think like, oh, that's scary. You would be scared. Why would you want to watch it when you were scared? It was the opposite, actually, because I'm not, I wasn't afraid that dinosaurs were going to attack me in my, you know, my home in my quiet neighborhood, but it was also super loud and super engaging. So I would turn it up really loud because one of the things that happens when you're, you're freaked out is all of the little noises start to make you jump and look around and freak out. So it was really like loud and action packed and I could turn it on and turn on all of the lights and just blast Jurassic Park. And it made me feel a lot better. So whenever I got scared, I would watch Jurassic Park. I'm pretty sure I watched it like every other week. So I haven't actually seen Jurassic Park, 
for like 10 years and I was watching it and I still knew every line because it's just one of those movies that you've seen it so many times and it was one of my childhood movies that's like burned into my brain there wasn't a single thing that I had forgotten it it just really it really holds a special place in my heart for that and then uh Lost World uh I know we're not going to talk about it tonight but Lost World was my first date so I got to go oh, go see nice. Lost World at age like 12 I think and hold hands with my first boyfriend Ooh. and have my first date at Lost World which is a terrible movie. Holding yep, hands. And it was like, oh my God. Earmuffs, kids. Oh my Earmuffs. God, his hand is sweaty. This is weird. I don't know if I like this. <laughs> <laughs> terrible movie. That. Even cool. better date. Right? Well, and it was, yeah, it was bad awesome. too because like, you would want the movie to be good if you're but like, I didn't really like the movie and I was also super nervous about him. And then I was realizing that maybe I didn't like him that much. So it was really just a terrible experience overall. It's Lost That's World's crazy. fault. The first relationship didn't work. Yeah, basically. Uh, yeah. And he liked it. Dang you, Steven Spielberg. So that Spielberg. was a deal breaker. Made it even worse. You're like, oh, that was the test. I was like, man, you have bad taste. We're done now. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, that's oh, a good man. story. I don't know if I can top that's that one. fantastic. <laughs> so my JPS, and I love the fact that we're using acronyms to describe our Jurassic Park stories. So I actually remember my story pretty vividly. I remember not being able to go to the movie because my parents wouldn't let me. They thought I would be too scared. So it came out in 93, I believe. So I was seven. And my brother and my sister went. They're both older than me, so they went. And... They, my parents insisted that I stay at home because I'd be too scared. They didn't want me to go. But I remember being so excited for this movie because I saw movie trailers for it, but I couldn't go see it. So when my sister got home, she literally told me the bedtime story of Jurassic Park. Like She would walk me through the story. And I remember it so vividly because in my mind, it played out differently than what I eventually saw on screen, which was probably a few years down the road on VHS. But that's one of my fondest memories, actually, is because my sister would tell me the story as she remembered it. And obviously, that's a, a different story than what you actually see. So I remember really appreciating that. I really bonded with my sister over that. But at the same time, I was able to get my Jurassic Park fix because I read the junior novelization that I got from the Scholastic Book Fair at, at my nice. elementary school. So it was like my backdoor way of getting my Jurassic Park fix. And it had like the... the insert of color photo so I got to see what the dinosaurs were and all that stuff and obviously that was an incomplete picture but for me that was that was it was like the holy grail that I couldn't see the movie but I could at least see the pictures and get everything else associated with it from that book and I think later on I eventually would end up reading Jurassic Park the book and Lost World that was my jam I was in eighth grade reading like the the huge books for Michael Crichton and I like would carry it around as like a badge of honor uh, these huge books I was reading above my grade level. So I thought that was really cool. And I remember reading the book Lost World before I saw the actual movie uh, Lost World, which I actually ended up seeing in theaters. And I was also very disappointed too when I actually ended up seeing that movie compared to what my expectations were going to be. But for Jurassic Park, that was huge for me because, you know, I had the toys. I was a huge fan of the Sega Genesis game. My parents <laughs> bought me the game. I don't know if you guys remember that game. That game was really hard, but it was so good. It is really hard. Um, and we'll talk about it more later about the legacy of Jurassic Park, but 
I think it's hilarious how the merchandising and how the movie don't match at all, but it doesn't matter because when you're a kid, you're like, ah, I really don't care if the, you know, Alan Grant never had a rocket pack. I get to have an action figure with him with a rocket pack. I didn't really care if the actual movie reflected that. So for me, nothing but fond memories of just family bonding, just geeking out, all that stuff. Really jealous, Will. I would have never been able to play the video games because my mom didn't like that I liked video games. And I, for the longest time, was not allowed to play video games. I used to pull Doom 2 out of the trash because she would find it and throw it away. And I would go through the trash and get it out and then, like, (laughs) wait until she fell asleep and then play Doom 2, like, at night. So the game was salvageable even though it was in the trash. Well, it was the the CD-ROM game, so it was like in the case or whatever. But yeah, I would never have been able to play a Jurassic Park game. That sounds awesome. Your just mom didn't want you to play video games. Yeah, and I actually ended up buying my first console at a garage sale, and I had to hide it. And like I would, (laughs) yeah, anyways. Yeah, uh, she failed. I'm a huge gamer now. Well, my uh, JPS is um, it's similar to some of y'all's. You know, it's funny, Will, you mentioned your sister telling you the story. And I remember the same thing happening when I was younger. And I'd just seen Star Wars and my friends were introducing me as well to Star Trek. And so they told me the story of Star Trek Two, And I still can remember the story of Star Trek Two through that story the same way you do with Jurassic Park. So that's kind of weird. And Andy, you were mentioning the fact that, you know, you you have this movie that you don't necessarily have to have seen, you know, so recently, and yet you remember every single thing about it. Um, Was watching just the other night with some friends, um, Swiss Family Robinson, the Disney version, which I grew up on, and I was so surprised the same thing. Like, I know every single sound in this film, like every single beat in it. Whether I'm watching it or not, I know exactly what's happening on screen. And Jurassic Park is really the same way. And for me, Will, my parents were a little bit strict when we were growing up. And I didn't get to see this in the theater either. But we were working at a camp um, that summer, um, like 94 or so, when it came out on VHS. And the camp director's family, they got the film. And we're all there that summer. My parents are working, we're helping out, and we get to watch Jurassic Park, at least I do, my sister was too little still, and I was just mesmerized and blown away, because I knew I wanted to see this movie. I I grew up a dinosaur geek as a kid, I used to draw dinosaurs, I used to get books out of the library about dinosaurs, I love dinosaurs, it's my thing, and I, I knew that I wanted to see this movie, and so the moment I saw it, it was it, it, I loved it. You know, it didn't really take any convincing for me to fall in love with Jurassic Park. And um, I, you know, obviously have been a huge fan ever since. Like you, I Will, I read Jurassic Park and The Lost World, the books, after I saw the movie. And of course, the book is spectacular. It, and, and, and listeners, if you've never actually read the Jurassic Park book, the original by Michael Crichton, it is hands down one of the greatest books. It's just so good. And there's so much more to the story. And some of the characters are a little bit different. But on a whole, it's fan flippantastic. So just go check that out. I highly recommend that. Lost World's okay. But it's really Jurassic Park, the book, where I think my love of dinosaurs and my love of film 
came together. And of course, you know, I already, I'm already a Spielberg fan by that point anyway, with Indiana Jones and all the other things that I've seen by him that he's done at that point. You know, he just added more icing on top of the cake for me with Jurassic Park. So with all those stories together, I kind of wondered for you guys, I mentioned some of the things for me, but what is it that we just love about this movie so much? I think it's it hits you on a very visceral level. I remember watching the trailer because I was watching another movie the year before, and I remember actually being scared um, because it's it, it, it attracts something in you. Like there's a primal fear of these creatures. You know, I, I remember the, the trailer involved digging for amber, right? Finding the mosquitoes, finding the insects. I remember that vividly. It's probably the only thing I remember of the trailer. But in my mind as a as a as a kid, I remember making the connection like dinosaurs can be these things can actually be re obviously now I, I know that even that science is very much bunk and kind of pseudoscience. But back then as a kid, the fact that there was a scientific veneer or there's there's a plausibility that this wasn't just fanciful, that it was plausible. And on top of the fact that this was, I really, the first time mainstream CGI was used so effectively, that it was it was done so well, I think it just attracts something in everyone. Like, everyone gets it. Like, it doesn't, it translates across nationalities, translates across age, um, genders, or what have you. Like, people understand dinosaurs, right? Those are creatures that you see, and you understand that that is something that is awe-inspiring, but frightening at the same time. So... For a lot of people, my mom could understand it. English is not her first language, but she gets it. Dinosaurs in a movie, she gets it. And it's, and it's something that <laughs> yeah. um, I think it just appeals to everyone on a very visceral level. For me, it's actually the humor. It's not even the dinosaurs. Um, I, I love the dinosaurs. Don't get me wrong. I mean, how could you not love a movie where dinosaurs are running around? Um, basically, Jurassic World had me with Chris Pratt and plus dinosaurs equals good time. Um, but actually, what I, <laughs> I really like about this movie is the comic beats. I think it's so funny. I remember when... Uh, when this movie came out about how everybody at school was talking about the T-Rex eating Gennaro off the toilet and how hilarious they thought that was. And like rewatching it, I'm just like, it is actually a very funny movie. And then also there's um, a really cool kind of balance between the fear and the wonder because this is just so awe-inspiring what they've um, accomplished in the movie. And, you know, seeing these scientists who have devoted their lives to dinosaurs see dinosaurs for the first time and, like, literally fall to the ground. Like, I think that's really beautiful. And then the acting is good, and it's just really well-paced, and I just really like this movie, I think. And it doesn't really let up. Like, even... Even in the the moments where there are you know no running or screaming or chasing or anything, it's like you're still engaged with the movie and it moves very quickly. But yeah, I I laugh every time I see this movie. I really enjoy it. Like there are so many classic moments, yeah. um, the Dilophosaurus <laughs> and Wayne Knight <laughs> falling through the. The rain and the Dilophosaurus being like all of a sudden super scary and hissing and stuff like that. I think that's I think that's hilarious. I love that part. I love how Lex just grabs on to Alan Grant as soon like that. What struck me too was just yes. hilarious yeah. how much that puppy love 
is right there. As a kid, like I didn't really get it, get it, but now I just think it's hilarious seeing that. You're right, Andy. Like it's it's it has a very like droll sense of humor. It's very dry at times. And just the way they handle like all the comic beats, the looks, the sideways, the sideways glances, all that stuff. It works really well. I also picked up a joke that I had never understood before for a good reason, which is uh, Gennaro. And he's he's looking at the scientist behind the glass and he asks if it's auto erotica. <laughs> that's not what he means at all. But I never yeah. caught that joke no. before because I was a kid and now it and I just love it. It made me laugh so hard this time around. I think that's the first that was the first like surprise rewatching it. it was like, oh, my God, I never I never heard that joke because I just didn't get it. Yeah, it's one of those great moments where they're showing you like why you should dislike this lawyer because he doesn't really get what's going on. He's just seeing the dollar signs. Yeah, that's that's a great moment. I always laugh at that part where he's like, auto auto erotica. <laughs> and then, and Hammond isn't even phased. He just is like, no, there's no animatronics here. Like he doesn't blink. even like, yeah, blink at the fact that you just said something that's completely outrageous. Yeah, I love it. Um, I think you guys both said amazing things about what this makes this movie work and what i think it kind of boils down to is this movie is holistically good and it's good for a younger audience it's good for an older audience as you grow up you get more and more things in it and it's not like greece where you start to just oh get all the dirty references as you get older no i mean you're just getting the underlying subtext of what's going on the of the relationships of the science of the big themes and questions that the movie is asking. And I think um, this is really Steven Spielberg at his best when he's creating and, and crafting a story and, and trusting the people around him. Um, I was watching the extras and he was talking about um, the the screenwriter helping them kind of craft some of these relationships specifically about kind of, you know, Malcolm um, being who he is in the film where he's, He's much more funny, um, and as uh, Spielberg puts it, his his kind of lecherous uh, desire for you know Doctor Doctor Sattler, and not even knowing that he's hitting on the you know the girlfriend of the guy sitting right next to him, um, you know the the puppy love aspect of the fact that they changed the kids' ages from the book so that you know Lex could have that crush on Doctor Grant, and it makes sense. Uh, you know all of these things. I I just think they made all the right choices to make a, a fantastic movie. And that really just came down to Steven, as he says, if you've seen the extras, I grew up a dinosaur nut. I loved dinosaurs and nothing more in me wanted to just bring that out. You know, I just wanted to bring that to screen. And I think that love of the subject matter and for the storyline and everything was something that it just it 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 just oozes on screen honestly and i think that's why we all respond to it because we, you know when you feel the love from a filmmaker like that for their subject you i think just respond really well to the film um i can't think of a time where i know that the filmmaker just absolutely loves this subject and just and the movie just completely sucks you know um so yeah, I, I think it's it's a it's a really nice um, look at what Hollywood can do 
when you put all the right people in the right jobs and let them just get creative together. And, uh, you know, it works really nicely. (laughs) And it helps. They have a great idea for uh, Michael Crichton to go off on the first place. Um, Andy, one of the big things, uh, we were talking earlier today, you and me and Will, um, kind of about some of the things we wanted to discuss. And I loved the, the subject that you brought up of scientific discovery versus this respect for nature. And Malcolm even says in the film, you know, your scientists were so busy with whether or not they could, they didn't stop to think about if they should. And that's a big question right there. And as you guys were talking about, the more I watch this film as an adult and and the more I I think about the, the themes of the book, there's enormous huge themes in this movie that have big implications, especially as technology keeps jumping by leaps and bounds. Yeah, I mean, they actually set this theme up quite well. Um, You see that, you know, Malcolm is representing this idea that nature can't be controlled and it needs to be respected. Um, And then you have on the other side of things, um, Hammond, you know, wanting to push the boundaries of everything, really. Uh, and I even was reading behind the scenes, like, they, they very specifically had Malcolm wear all black. And then you have Richard Attenborough always wearing white. They were very much supposed to represent different ideas of how to handle scientific discovery. And um, I think it works really, really well. Uh, it's it's nicely done. It's kind of throughout the movie, but it's not ever hitting you over the head, um, which is always good. And just kind of coming up organically. And I think it's a really relevant question. Um, you know, the mid-90s is really when our our latest, you know, computer advances and, like, technology really took a, a big leap forward. And it's still continuing to this day. Like, we're really, we're really pushing the boundaries of scientific discovery. And that's great. I mean, there's, there's so much to be figured out and there's so much to learn about our world and there are so many things that we can do with new technology and new breakthroughs and all of this stuff and that's awesome but we also have to take the time to think through the ethical repercussions and the consequences of you know discovering new things and you know what the blowback might be that you're not expecting like the the idea of somebody just creating dinosaurs and then thinking that they can control what happens is so hilarious to me. I can't believe that anybody would think that would work, especially since they basically apparently just use a big electric fence and think that'll go well. Well, and it's so funny because, like you said, the idea, you know, Hammond says creation is a sheer act of will. And Sattler, she fires back, you know, Control is an illusion. You know, the illusion is that you had control in the first place. And this whole time, it's really, I feel like it's these people, they're playing God with fossilized mosquitoes as if, you know, they have the right to do this, like they have the knowledge to do this, um, you know, that they can control any kind of species that they have absolutely no knowledge of. But they're just going to bring them forth onto the earth as if they are God speaking them forth. And I love that. You know, like the hubris of their creation here is is massive. And it, I, I, the movie does a great job, like you said, Andy. It's not in your, you know, it's not in your face, like 
drowning the message at you so that you get annoyed. But you are left, I think, as you get older, really thinking about this and being like, man, whew, we need to sit back and think sometimes before we act. Um, and I think a lot of humanity in a lot of places, not just science, we've kind of lost that. Yeah, I think this movie is very much a relic. And I mean that in a, in a good sense, but it's very much a, a product of its time, of the mid to early 90s. Because if you were to extrapolate this, and I think we'll, we'll see it in Jurassic World, hopefully, but our definition, our interpretation of technology has changed. And the way Jurassic Park portrays that type of technology, I think it's still very much within a optimistic and hopeful lens obviously if jurassic park existed in our time period now i think for me when i watch it now the one thing that does strike me is how can he keep this a secret how is the american government how are how are other companies how are other entities either okay with this or they just allow it to happen and how does no one else know about the existence of this because if this actually happened in 2015 you know this is something that is is earth shattering that we could create these types of creatures. The secret would be out so quickly, but I think because it's a product of its time, I think that's what makes the movie work so well because not only are you going back and looking at dinosaurs clearly as beings from another era completely. It's also looking back at how we as a society looked at technology and the development of science as well. And it was very much an earlier phase of that. It was very much a phase in which, we believe technology held the key to lots of things. And I think now with a lot of science fiction per se, it's developed into more of, I wouldn't say outright dystopian, but there is much more of, of a cynical tone to it. And I think that's the thing that strikes me when I watch Jurassic Park now is that even though the island, even though they lose you know power, even though they everything goes wrong, at its heart, it's still not a cynical movie. It's not overbearingly dystopian or post-apocalyptic there's still an optimism there there's still that sense of wonder in the face of everything going wrong and i think that's the thing that makes the movie as timeless as it is because it's able to be so different than movies that we have now well yeah i mean they have even after everything has gone wrong they still take the time to have grant be amazed over and over again of you know being able to see dinosaurs right in front of him and they have really great moments in which I, I'm, I'm thinking especially of the the scene with Lex and Grant and Tim and the Brachiosaurus is that right where you know they mm -hmm. they pet her and they feed her and I mean this is after they've already been you know terrified and running for their lives but they still take that moment to be amazed and I think that's really nice that kind of sense of you know, this is amazing and take the time to realize that even though maybe it was a mistake, they still accomplished something that is just completely awe-inspiring. It's funny that, um, Will, you kind of see the, this this somewhat optimism and I can see some of that, but at the same time as I was watching this movie again today, I was really kind of seeing the idea of the terror of technology and that, you know, it was almost kind of like a, a modern Frankenstein. You know, where we're playing with things that we don't, that aren't in our preview to be playing with. We're playing God and, and that's not our um, design to do that. 
you know, and it kind of makes sense a little bit just because, I mean, you know, Spielberg is, is Jewish and a lot of his films have um, a religious aspect to them all the way back. And this kind of idea of, of man kind of being their own worst enemy um, from Jaws all the way on, you know. So I really see that, though, even more now, I guess, in light of today and where we kind of see um, some of the the bad parts of technology along with the good parts of technology. And uh, kind of as we were talking about with the Tomorrowland podcast that we did, you know, it, it it's sad to see that our technology isn't isn't pushing us towards things like, you know, going to other planets and exploring our universe. You know, we're pushing technology now just for more convenience and doing things like the most, uh, like, why do we need to clone an animal? And, and should we clone an animal? You know, all these kind of big questions. And so it's interesting that, you know, the, the questions this movie raised are just as valid now some of that stuff is just happening out there in science. And you talked about how do they keep it silent? Silent, you know. Well, I don't think anybody um, really followed, you know, them, you know, cloning a lamb or anything like that until they just announced, "Hey, guess what? We cloned a lamb." And everybody's like, "What? You you did what?" Science definitely has a good way of of keeping itself quiet until um, it's ready to let us know. Hey, guess what we did? Oh really? <laughs> I think that's also a fair point too. I, I don't, I don't want to discount the fact that there wasn't definitely a message there of you know not doing these things, although we technically could, although we have the ability to do it. We should question the ethics, the morality, the parameters, the ramifications of all that, and that's there. And I think what both of you mentioned already is very important to this movie is that there's that message is there, but it's something that is obviously left to the, the audience to understand. There's obviously that mm, yeah. line of thinking from Ian Malcolm. Of course, you have that. But I think there's, I think a lot of it has to do, and I think we're going to talk about it in this episode, a lot of it has to do with the music. I think because the music in a lot of ways is, is so uplifting, it's such a, like, a classic score. I think it lifts the movie up in a sense of, of wonderment that doesn't get weighed down by the cynicism and obviously the the... I would not say say dark, but I would say more serious questions that arise from this this environment or this situation. So I think it does a very good balancing act of, of really navigating both the wonder and the awe, but also obviously all the real life questions and all the real life ramifications, the very um, serious ramifications that would come up from doing all these things. And that when you walk away, you walk away saying, you know, we shouldn't do these things, but at the same time, we should at least still want to learn more about it, explore what we can within the parameters of what is ethical and what is within our within our grasp as a species to do. And I think that's the the big takeaway for me. It was interesting at the beginning of the movie, you know, when they're at the dig site and he's trying to get Grant and Sattler to come to visit the park, you know, and he's enticing them by saying, I can fully fund your dig for another three years. And it was just a really interesting thing is we're talking about this idea of science and, and how, you know, so many scientists, they, they do want to do good work. And yet, in a lot of ways, they have to kind of sell their souls to these corporate minions to be able to get their work done, 
you know, they have to do something they wouldn't necessarily want to do so that they can get the money for the research for the things they do want to do. And just the way that that works and how, you know, I'm sure frustrating that is, you know. And it, again, it really harkens back, I think, to the idea of, you know, we, we used to spend good money on NASA research, which gave us amazing technological breakthroughs. And it also helped us know more about, you know, the world around us and the universe around us. Um, and yet, you know, we don't find that to be important anymore. Um, and so those scientists doing that work, they have to go find that money elsewhere now. And who knows, you know, there's always a payoff then at that point. So um, it was a really interesting thing. It, it's not a huge point, but it was just really interesting to see the way that that the community kind of works because, you know, you can't go spend years digging up dinosaur bones without somebody paying for it. And what do you have to do to get that paid for? Yeah, I have a and lot for of them. And, sorry, go ahead. Well, that, and I was just thinking for them in the movie, you know, it's they get supported by somebody like Hammond who can afford to, to fund this in, in this kind of way. Right. I, I have a lot of friends that are, are in the sciences or in the academy, in academia, and, you know, they face these problems every day. The fact that they're so beholden upon funding sources, whether it's through the government through private funding or through a benefactor they're so beholden to it that it sometimes impedes the work that they're doing and that's a really good point about the beginning of the movie and i think you also see it throughout this movie but obviously later on in the sequels which we won't talk about in this episode but the the line between you know commodifying this scientific breakthrough right hammond originally wanted to open this up to the world but you see elements like Gennaro and later on his his nephew the wanting to commoditize this right really to monetize this as just another revenue stream that this was just part of InGen's corporate business plan whereas Hammond was doing this as you know a public good that he wanted to do this as an educational as a scientific approach as a scientific endeavor and I think in the books you have a lot more of in the book, in my opinion, is a lot darker than what the movie is, and I think the movie made mm-hmm. some yeah, smart changes. But in the book, especially, you get to see that type of very cynical corporate thinking in terms of InGen is doing this in in a sense just to make money, that this is just another mm-hmm. type of business that they're expanding into, a new market to expand into. And there's a, there's so much of that, that corporate think which doesn't allow them to foresee the problems that's going to come down the road. And I think it's really interesting that the movie does allude to in these parts. And I think in the very end, you realize that it's something that was very much a product of our hubris, that we just thought that this was just another commodity to be harnessed, right? When in reality, this is nature at its most, you know, unfiltered, its most raw. It's going to obviously find a way, like the movie said. Well, don't worry, Will. There's going to be a coupon day. So it'll all be fine. That's yeah, right. exactly. That's right. Oh, I totally forgot <laughs> about that We can charge that whatever so we want. Yeah, 1000 a day, 10000 a day, and people will pay it. Um, yeah, that is... I, Michael Crichton talked about the movie and, and the book, you know, and he said, I wondered, you know, obviously there, aren't a, there isn't a lot of uh, uh, people out there that are just clamoring for dinosaurs to be brought back. So, you know, how would you pay for this? And his idea was is that 
we would pay for it by saying it was going to be an entertainment, that we would bring it back as something that people would see. It would just be another theme park. It would be another type of entertainment. And, oh my gosh, it just got me thinking, you know, um, this really isn't much better than, you know, saying, you know what we should do? We should build a big arena and then we should have people fight each other. And we should throw some lions in there and let them fight each other and people too. And that'll be entertaining. You know, like it's it's really just a whole other version of the the Colosseum in, in some ways, you know, that we're going to use living beings like dinosaurs that are dangerous. We're going to bring them back because we're going to we're going to make a buck off it. It's going to entertain people like, oh, my gosh, you know, it that's a whole other discussion of what we value as entertainment and why we value it, you know, and it's personally for me, it is one of the reasons I do not like zoos. Um, I don't like, and I'm not, I'm not, I'm not a whacked out environmentalist people. I just don't think it's our preview to, to lock some animals up in a cage just so I can see them. That That's just my personal opinion so you can take it or leave it but that's as political as we'll get on this show um <laughs> tonight it it just it's the same thing though we're this one is even worse we're gonna create a dangerous creature just so we can take a look at it like i you could know. see how you know uh <laughs> actually going forward with some of this and like you know having a couple dinosaurs at a time or something could be very very useful from a research perspective but that's not how they did it. Yes, you there know, you they, go. Yeah. they they brought mm-hmm. back as many as they could and they put them all together and you know that it wasn't for science. Not even for Hammond it's not for science. It's about for him he's like he is, he's an entertainer. Um and, you know, he has parks all over the world. Um so it's not it's not about discovery for a lot of them. It's it, and you know that monetary aspect is also super disturbing but like think about how you could have had say one triceratops and you could learn a ton by having one triceratops but it wouldn't be dangerous you know um but that's not what they do but where's the profit in that i know candy, see right? I, I'm, that's... I'm not thinking big enough i guess we just spent 42 billion dollars to bring you one triceratops i personally think Seriously? it would be very much worth it but well, and, and I'm with you because I was thinking the exact same thing in my mind tonight as I watched the movie. I was like, oh, goodness, if if they had just like maybe brought one or two of these dinosaurs back at a time, yeah, you wouldn't have an issue. Like, it would be fantastic. Um, you could really kind of study it and, and know you wouldn't get the social behavior of the dinosaur. But, man, you would still get a lot uh, in this. Now, the other thing that they they briefly touched on in the movie the science of it and uh, and Crichton goes into it more of the book but you know they have been genetically modified these dinosaurs so they're not exactly the same that you know they've been modified with amphibian DNA and all of these kind of things so that it it's not as though we literally brought dinosaurs back from the dead you know these aren't exactly the same so um, it, it's not a one for one but yeah, Andy, I'm completely with you. You know, the responsible thing for science to do would would be to do what you mentioned, just bring back one or two dinosaurs at a time 
and see what, you know, it's like and and then maybe go from there. But it does definitely seem like they just made like 10 different dinosaurs. As we know from the next movie, they've got a whole other island where they've been doing this too. And <laughs> it, it's it's a lot less well thought out than it should be, especially something of this magnitude. <laughs> I think it's very interesting because you have when, when Nedry is stealing all those embryos in that scene, right? And I'm not sure, I haven't read the book in a long time, but, and so correct me if I'm wrong, Matthew, but this is something that you could easily see for me extrapolating in terms of they would copyright the DNA, they would copyright the design that they use to create the Dilophosaurus, the Brachiosaurus, the T-Rex, because it's exactly right. This is not actually 100% authentic dinosaurs. They've They've commodified it. It is a product, right? They have filled in the gaps with scientific um, research, with their own intellectual property, created a, a completely different product. What you described in terms of how this is something completely different is something exactly how a lawyer or a corporate structure would view this, right? It's, it's an asset to be protected, and that's why InGen was so was so secretive and so protective of these embryos, which is why Nedry had to steal it in the first place to go to their competitor. And you see that 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 strain of cynicism, especially in the books, but in the movie, I think they really do a really good job too. And I think that's very much part and parcel of how we're trying to graft onto nature, the raw uh, evolutionary force of nature, these very artificial human structures of, you know, we're going to commodify this, this is our product, we're going to create it for entertainment, and then you see in this movie, you know, nature just kind of just shrugging, just casually shrugging off those shackles and be like, well, you thought you had us controlled. Actually, you don't have us controlled at all. Right. And I think that's just a very it's a very incisive commentary that's relevant now. And it's probably going to be, unfortunately, even more relevant as as we go forward. As they, um, you know, they they explore we're, we talked a lot about the science aspect of it. But the nature aspect of it is really cool in this movie. Um, You have the backdrop of the hurricane, which is a really cool way to kind of shadow over all of this. That, you know, there are things that can't be controlled. We can't control the weather, um, for instance. And sometimes, you know, nature has this awesome power to just knock us down. Um, And... You know, also the whole the whole theme of life will find a way. I love that, and the idea that they they try and put nature in this box, and nature is like, nah, I will figure it out. And I don't know that I completely buy that this would have happened so quickly, but I absolutely buy that it would have happened. You know, um, and I really like that theme as well. Yeah, it's a it's a good theme. I mean, interestingly enough, the film crew faced a hurricane in third weekend of filming in Hawaii. They were slammed by a hurricane, and so actually the storm footage that you do see breaking the waves there at Hawaii uh, is actually real hurricane footage that they shot before they had to leave um, and hold up in the hotel. So, but yeah, the fact that that idea of, of the control of nature and that nature is uncontrollable by human beings like it this movie does a really good job of just showing exactly how small we really are and even on our own planet and controlling things like weather and animals and ecosystems and all of this we we don't 
We don't have the ability to control it. We can steward it. We can take care of it, but we can't really control it. And that's a completely different story. And a lot of times it's when we usurp the the natural order of things where we are in the, the system and we try to, again, I think just we play God, it doesn't really work out well. And I think that's one of the things that resonates with us with this movie and while we're having this really long discussion about all this is that we realize there are certain things that we shouldn't do but we're constantly pushing the boundaries to do them because we're defiant as a race. That's that's one of our like key, um, I think, ingrained, it's part of our system, is, is to be defiant and to do what we know we shouldn't do. But we're going to do it anyway. Can you imagine if someone totally learned the wrong lesson from this movie and they're like, wait a minute, the only answer to respond to dinosaurs on the loose, let's build robots. That's the only way to counter these dinosaurs is we're going to have to build robots to actually fight these dinosaurs. And it's just Jurassic Gosh. Park is ruined. It just becomes this very, I mean, obviously I'm, I'm well, very tongue in cheek. Well, you are pitching, Rim you are pitching Terminator all, versus yeah. dinosaurs right now. And I want to see that movie. It's, it's called go. a, it's, yeah. it's called a using it, leveraging all our movie properties. It's called synergizing <laughs> it into a, a, a multi-tent <laughs> shared universe where everything's connected so you can have like oh, the T-1000 like fighting a T-Rex and that would make sense somehow. And the thing is that I'm totally joking, but I'm sure somewhere down the road, like somewhere down the road or in the past, this has been discussed somehow. Like maybe we could bring these franchises together. Well, we did get Predator versus cynicism. Alien. So I know. Right. So I think that's hilarious. That fact that I'm being I'm being ridiculous, <laughs> but I'm sure someone has considered this and they're like, mm, maybe we'll shelve it for, you know, 10 years down the road. Right. Ugh. Well, this film really does a lot of things in 1993 and it changes filmmaking again in the way that Star Wars did in the sense that it completely revolutionizes the way that we think about movies and how they can be made, what they can do and what goes along with it. And Will, you were talking about earlier, just you had video games, the toys and the clothes. I mean, you, the Sega Genesis game, um, you were marketing this movie even then to like five-year-olds with toys and they're still doing that now, which I don't understand. This is not a movie for five-year-olds, but we give them cute little dinosaurs to play with from Jurassic Park and like, it's, it's not a kid's movie. Um, I just, I don't get it. But there's that. And then on top of that, they were going to just use stop motion animation for this. Phil Tippett and the guys there, uh, Stan Winston Studios, they were going to create all the dinosaurs, which they still did, but they were going to do the stop motion. And uh, Dennis Murin calls up Steven Spielberg and says, I want you to see something that I've done. And he created the skeletal structure for the Gallimiduses and had them trotting through a field, just a one plate, a couple of plates that they'd shot from Hawaii. And Stephen thought it looked great. And he's like, this is the future. And that's where we get, I mean, CGI is really born with Jurassic Park. Um, and the, the way that we watch movies was never the same. <laughs> And arguably, I would say that this is still sets the benchmark for how to integrate that type of CGI. And, you know, obviously, if you watch this movie now, the effects have dated a little bit. But I think 
they still get the overall formula correct in terms of integrating that human story, that human element with these other special effects, with the technology that they're able to to wield to create better and better special effects. I, I'm hard-pressed to actually think of a movie that better signifies that type of perfect balance than Jurassic Park, which is un- yet another reason why the movie, in my opinion, has aged so well. Well, I mean, it's over 20 years old, but the effects, I mean, they're a little dated, but they still hold up. Like, they still look good, and that is amazing because you, you think of other other movies from you know even five ten years and you can su- you can see the difference but they they did such a good job that they actually still it still looks good and I'm just very impressed by that I remember just a couple of years ago when it was the 20th anniversary and the movie came back out into the theaters in 3d and I I rushed to the theater with a friend of mine to see it because I hadn't seen the movie in the theater and I wanted to experience Jurassic Park, you know, where it's meant to be seen. And I saw it in IMAX 3D and it was everything that I wanted to be. And you're completely right, Andy. Everything holds up. You know, um, I can tell the CGI is, is from that era, but it also still looks really good. And like you said, Will, they're integrating the animatronic dinosaurs and everything to seamlessly tell this story and you know so the the cgi t-rex and the the big puppet t-rex that they're using the animatronic one they work together in tandem and i'm not drawn out when i know one is one and the other is the other you know um it really is just i think fantastic and i think you know, I do think that this movie not only changed the way they marketed films, you know, uh, especially even PG-13 films to younger audiences, um, but it, it did. It it obviously sparked something for George Lucas where he was like, I might actually be able to pull the prequels off because he knew I can't get Yoda to fight and... The story we're going to tell, I have to have that be a plausibility. But when he saw this, he realized the technology was catching up to his vision. And, of course, all the other visions of all these other filmmakers who would have loved to do these amazing stories. You think about Peter Jackson with the Lord of the Rings series and the Hobbit series and all of these big, massive movies like that. Titanic, you know, um, you could have done it with models, but, you know, James Cameron was able to to pull that off with CGI, Avatar, all these incredible things um, that were only possible because Steven Spielberg took this huge leap in filmmaking to say, we're going to do CGI and we're going to make it work. And those guys, everybody from the CG artists to the puppet artists, everybody just up their game and they still blow us away today. I mean, I was just watching the movie before we recorded. Every time I watch it, I'm still blown away by those dinosaurs. Yeah, it works. It works on every, I think, every possible level. And I think so much of it has to do with being able to be ahead of the curve like Spielberg, being able to anticipate the next iteration of technology but also at the same time while recognizing it being able to execute being able to implement it in a way that's believable because i'm i'm definitely sure that there are iterations before where 
they wanted to do something as ambitious or something similar, but they just couldn't do it. And I think this was very much the perfect storm of the the means, the method, the intent, the and the the, the skill to pull it all together. I think it's actually a very meta moment. I just thought of it right now, actually. You know, when they were marketing all those all those toys at, at me as a seven, eight year old, you know, I remember the Happy Meal toys. I remember the T shirts. I remember the action figures. And I, I just love how <laughs> yes. they didn't even match the movie, but you didn't care, right? You know, so you had like Alan Grant and Ian Malcolm and Ellie Sattler. They had like rocket packs and grappler guns and helicopters, things that were never in the movie, but as a kid, you just ate up, right? And for me, we were just having this conversation about, you know, the monetization, the commercialization of these dinosaurs. What they were doing with the movie was exactly that. And I think, you know, what a meta moment it would have been if in the movie, you know, they're talking about, you know, selling they showed the toys that they were planning on selling for the movie, but they were selling it in universe as a toys for the park. Right. It's that type of like that, you know, that kind of tongue in cheek or they're winking at the audience of like, this is the type of commercialization we're kind of warning you about, but at the same time is necessary for the success of this movie. And I think only now as I'm older, do I kind of appreciate how all those things are tied into a very finely tuned, uh, movie studio marketing machine how they roll out this film but that's so true I remember so much of because I couldn't watch Jurassic Park in its first run so much of what I loved about Jurassic Park was all the tangential things associated with it so for me that just that strikes a chord with the theme of the movie itself one is Malcolm said you stood on the shoulders of geniuses accomplish something as fast as possible and before you could even know what you had you patented it you package it and you slapped it on a punch plastic lunchbox and now you're selling it you want to sell it and that's exactly what they do for this movie and i think like you said what a meta moment in the end where they're kind of referencing the packaging of movies and how we kind of serve them to the public in the same way that they're trying to do jurassic park you know like they are winking at you but at the same time they're also thinking we gotcha well, they actually use the movie merchandise in the movie. Exactly. Yeah, right? the, they do. The Ford Explorer. Yeah, and I mean, they, they have that oh, shot of one the, of those so the bad. gift shop, and it's like all the t-shirts yeah. and stuff. That that wasn't, like, that was real stuff that they had designed for the movie marketing. Well, we would be remiss if we did not talk about Johnny Williams' fantastic Jurassic Park score and maybe one of the top five movie scores of all time. Um, for you guys, what is it about this music that just, you know, you can listen to it. I feel like I can listen to this music. I could put the CD. This is literally the first CD I ever bought was this soundtrack. So it has a special place in my heart. Um, but what is it about this, um, this music that just works? John Williams is a genius. I mean, you were saying like top five. I'm like, I, yes. I'm pretty sure the other that four were also genius. by John Williams. Yeah. It's like Star Wars and Harry Potter. <laughs> Harry Indiana Potter, Jones. Empire Strikes Back, yeah, um, Superman, mm, Jaws, E.T. Yep. I mean, yeah, the list goes on and on. And, and most of them are John Williams. But I would dare say, at least in my opinion, I think this is right up with Star Wars. And I think... Oh, yeah, be- I agree. Because... Because it captures the mood, because it captures that mood so well, the entire spectrum of emotions you have when you're watching this movie. Star Wars, as much as I love Star Wars, it's 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 very much one note in a lot of ways in terms of 
in terms of emotion when you're watching the movie. But with, with Jurassic Park, especially with that score, it's very melancholy. What I love, the best part about that score is that melancholy piano piece when they're it's very quiet and then it builds up to that crescendo when you hear the drums and the full orchestra. And I think that is very much how I'm feeling when I'm watching this movie. There's a melancholy, there's a, there's a kind of a wistful, like, you know, this is something that we shouldn't be doing. This is something that, something that takes more of, um, not necessarily a darker turn, but something that we need to take more introspection in. But then there are parts of the movie where, you're literally in wonder and awe of watching these creatures who you never thought you'd see realized. There's a sense there. There's a sense of adventure and of wonderment and of just, it's like a grandiose sense that's just transferred from this music. So it's perfect for like, I remember listening to this when I was like trying to write a paper in school or like when I was exercising or I was on a car ride. It just like put you in a good mood because, you know, it, parts of it calms you makes you kind of think it's quieter and then it builds that crescendo and it's just like it's very triumphant in in the way that when you watch that movie goes back to how i feel that there's there's an optimistic strain through it despite the fact that bad things really bad things happen that there's still there's still a core of it that's very triumphant and very at least celebrating the fact that this is something that's amazing literally amazing yeah i think you are so right, Will. I mean, you're just dead on. The fact that the music hits all the right places, the the right emotions at the right time. Um, you know, you're talking about that kind of melancholy. There's the there's a great track on the on the soundtrack called "Remembering Petticoat Lane," and I love that whole little sequence where him and Ellie are talking, uh, Hammond and Ellie are talking about, you know, we've, and we talked about the huge theme of the, the control and all of that. And, and the music in there is, is hinting at the whimsy of, of what Hammond used to be. And the fact that he never says it, but he may have gone mad, you know, we're not quite sure. And the music does such a good job of playing all the right themes at all the right times I just think is is really fantastic. The grandeur of dinosaurs is encaptured in the theme to Jurassic Park in the same way that the magic of Harry Potter is encaptured in William's score. Or the 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 force has a sound, and it's that Yoda's theme from Empire Strikes Back. Uh, Superman had a march all those years, and it was his theme. You know, Jaws had a sound, and it was just a couple notes. You know, I mean, that's the genius of, of John Williams and what this score, I think, adds to the film because it really is a whole other character in the movie. And... When John Williams' music works the best, I think that's the case. And he's created something that is truly, truly special. And it will be very interesting for me to hear Michael Giacchino try to use those themes and find a way to create something that feels reminiscent and plays homage. And I I don't even think you should try to one-up it. You know, I honestly think you just need to bow down to the master and use his stuff in kind of the same way I think John Ottman did with the Superman Return soundtrack where it sounded like another great John Williams score, honestly. 
And uh, I think that's the best compliment you could pay any film score. Uh, you sounded just like John Williams there, and that's not a bad thing. So for you guys, before we kind of get down to the, the end, any nitpicks about the movie? Just, I mean, because even if it's one of your favorite movies, there's usually something that might may stand out for you. And I just wondered if you guys had anything like nope. that with this movie. I love this movie basically from top to bottom, and I rewatched it you know, yesterday and it was amazing to me that I I still love it. Like basically every moment. Even the smallest stuff when Nedry puts like the uh the Barbasol can and he puts shaving cream on the pie and like just the tiniest, tiniest things. I, I love it. I just love the whole thing. What about you, Will? I don't I, I I'm gonna have to agree with Andy. I think I can't really think I know you have one, Matt, so I'm gonna let you go address that. But I think for me I just I'm really hard pressed to really think of something that even mm. I would think of as like a nitpick that I can't can't explain away because I really can't. I think internally the logic of the movie, as long as it's internally consistent, it makes sense. Obviously, entire concept, you know, obviously it can be a little far fetched too if you really think about it. But that's not the point of us going watching this movie. So everything I've seen from this movie is internally consistent for me. I think it, it works. In the same way that um, I think a lot of fans, there was some outcry with Jurassic World about there's new scientific understanding that maybe dinosaurs had feathers. So should the new iteration of dinosaurs have feathers? And there was somewhat of a controversy around that. I think obviously them taking artistic license and just adapting the what the dinosaurs look like uh, in terms of reptilian, I think that works. I think... People could nitpick around those types of details. I'm sure there are plenty of details to nitpick in terms of does it really make sense to draw DNA from from amber and actually do this and use amphibian DNA? And there's a lot of that nitpicking too. But for me, that is something that I think I can just totally 100% accept. And I really can't think of any. Well, for me, the only thing about the movie, and it's bothered me ever since I've seen it, is there's this scene with the t-rex it walks out of its paddock after the gate has gone off it snaps the cords and it walks out and then later on you see that the jeep the the explorer gets dropped off onto a cliff basically and lands in that tree and there's never enough visual cue for you to not realize that you're not dropping down the same spot They've mentioned earlier that uh, the paddocks have, uh, some of them have moats in certain places, and but there's just not enough done editing-wise for you to realize that it's not the exact same spot. It you just every time I've watched the movie, until ve- looking very very closely this time, I always thought five seconds ago a T Rex just walked out of there. He's not that tall. <laughs> How did they fall down a hundred foot, you know, like crevasse into this area, you know, where there's a huge tree that, you know, an explorer can fall in. That's the only thing that's ever bothered me about this movie. Um, and you wrote and 50 fan letters as a kid. You're I like- did not. You know, <laughs> no, I, you know, um, it's never anything that I've I've really necessarily totally held against the movie. In the end, it's not really important. So um, it's just one of those things that just kind of drove me crazy from a narrative point of view. It was like, 
there wasn't enough distinction to kind of know that where T-Rex came out and where the Explorer dropped off, two different parts. And yeah, um, because if you think about it, you're like, that doesn't make sense at all. Because T-Rex, again, he's not that tall. (laughs) He's like, what, 20, 30 feet tall there? He's not tall enough to to get out of, of where they fall down to. So other than that, you guys, I'm with you. This movie is um, uh, practically perfect in every way. It's it's the Mary Poppins of films. I think I've said that before with another movie, but I, I really believe that. For you guys, I mean, I don't even think we... Do we need to give a rating other than this is a great movie? But does it hold up for you? Um, 20 years more later, does it still hold up as, as the movie that... Not just that you remember... But obviously, yes. does it still hold up for, say, an audience today? Yeah, I, I actually saw this movie this past Thanksgiving was the most recent time I saw it. It's probably the perfect post-Thanksgiving meal. It's the perfect holiday movie. It's the perfect anytime movie. If I had to choose one movie to show, like, anyone, like, anyone, family, friends, coworkers of any age, I'll probably show my kids this movie. I'll show my, my parents this movie. Like, it just works. It's like the ultimate Mm-hmm. general audience movie and I don't mean that in a derogatory way because it hits so many notes it literally is like the perfect summer and everyone can get something from this movie yeah this movie is good for everyone and I think when it comes to films you know just about anybody can enjoy this movie no matter where you're from who you are it's a movie that you can resonate with and you know, you can be younger or older, and you're you're probably going to get something out of it. I love that this is a great movie that actually has something to have us think about as well. You know, people always say, "Oh, it's just a popcorn movie. You don't have to think about it. You don't don't worry about that." But Jurassic Park is a great popcorn movie, and it still leaves us with a ton of themes that we spent at least twenty minutes of this podcast talking about. So, don't tell me that. It is all about great story, great characters before anything else. And it doesn't matter what your visuals are. If your story and your characters and your themes don't resonate, we're not going to respond. And I think maybe that's why we just didn't respond as well to uh, the other two Jurassic Park films. We'll talk about those next week. But um, yeah, I, I think that's why this one is the one that everybody's like, oh man, Jurassic Park's so good. You know, interestingly, today I was at work and I I mentioned that I was going to be talking about Jurassic Park and my boss was like, oh, I hate Jurassic Park. And my coworker gave the most hilarious, like huge, startled, jaw-dropping, like jumped in his chair and was like, what? Like he could not believe that anyone could not love Jurassic Park and it really made me laugh. It was so dramatic. Um, so apparently there is at least one person in the world that doesn't love Jurassic Park, but I don't get it. What was his reasoning? Um, he just thought it was dumb, I guess. And I was just like, I'm sorry, your opinion is wrong. Bye. No, but I just, I loved that reaction. I wish I could like gif it. It was amazing. It was like huge over the top startlement. It looked like he had been like shocked. Like he got tased or something. He was just so shocked by that. I'm just amazed. So does your boss just watch like historical 
documentaries because he Actually. can't buy into any fiction, right? He's, I just I just can't buy that concept. I'm oh like, my well, gosh. that's the whole point, So then right? he goes, well, at the time, I was really into, like, art house indies, and I was like, great. Oh. <laughs> oh. So he's one of... Oh. He's one of those. <laughs> oh, gag me. So you can't... I'm, okay. Yeah, you know what's funny? I love art house movies just as much as anybody. Really do. I'm with you. But that doesn't mean you can't enjoy Jurassic Park. I mean, yeah, it's it's itic, and it, it it's it's important for movies too. You know, you got to enjoy lots of different types of movies. I think anyway, in in general, just to be able to appreciate the really good films, you know. Um. So yeah, <laughs> that's hilarious. Oh man. Well, guys. I'm so glad that we got a chance uh, to talk about Jurassic Park tonight. It's It's been a blast, but it's, of course, not the only thing that we have been talking about in Trek FM the past week. Here's a quick look at some of the other things you may have missed elsewhere on the network. Previously on Trek.FM, Standard Orbit. No doubt. You would always go director's cut. I would always go director's cut because this because is what the director, right. director intended. It's art. This is not a democracy. It's a cheerocracy. And the director is the cheer-tater. Earl Grey. You know, what the dressing up and what the, the clubs and the meetings and the podcast, you know, all really comes down to is just finding and talking and being around other people who enjoy something that you really enjoy. The Orb. I'd like to see the Borg assimilate Ferenginar and then they would become bankers you know I could see oh my gosh I could see drones yeah yeah the the world's (laughs) strictest bank ever (laughs) I'm sorry you have not paid your loan you will be assimilated (laughs) the nanites go into you (laughs) yes the ready room Oh man, I can see instead of Kirk, it's Mike Ditka throughout the entire. <laughs> it's just like chewing the whole time, like, yeah. Edith Killer must die. Oh, she's gotta die. Commentary: Trek stars. The theme song. I mean, I, I guess it's cool. The thing that that I was kind of struck by was the opening title sequence itself. Yeah, it makes no sense. <laughs> it's literally like all three of them are running for their lives. The Six O Two Club. But I loved the scene with um, Lucy and Tumnus when they first meet because mm-hmm. that's a very yeah. vivid description in the book. Um, and I felt like they, they really nailed that in terms of the way it looked. And and the CGI was advanced enough so that um, James McAvoy really looked like he had fawn legs. and Literary tricks. Tell us about coming up with this this story for the crew of the Enterprise, where did it come from for you and what were some of your inspirations for diving into these characters once again? Well, Troublesome Minds was such a book that it left me with, as if I I didn't quite finish. I'd come up with Troublesome Minds as an idea that the the idea was what pushes Spock toward Colinar. Axanar, the official podcast. There is more to life then just get up, go to work, come home, watch TV, go to bed, repeat until dead. There's more to life than that. And I, I believe that uh, that's the essential magic of Star Trek is that it says it, it appeals to that that urge to get up off the couch, walk out the front door and go see what's out there. 
And that's what else is happening on Trek.fm. Check out these shows. Guys, find out what we've been talking about in your favorite corner of the Star Trek universe and beyond. Even Jurassic Park. You'll find us uh, wherever you get your podcasts. Um, guys, you know that if you're an Apple user, there are some things that are they're really kind of easy that you can do for us that really help us grow as a network. Um, you know, we are growing by leaps and bounds here with the network. Uh, we're bringing a continuing mission back. We've got Will as the uh, co-host for Warp 5. Andy and the women at Warp Girls have joined us now at the network. We are doing all we can to bring you the best content possible and if you would love to be able to share that with others, especially because most people get their podcasts from Apple, hit that subscribe button and give us a star rating and review. Those things really help us rise in the rankings. And I just really want to say thank you to all of you that have helped do that for us. It really has been a joy to see some of the reviews come in and um, it's just been really nice. Uh, we've gotten some great reviews recently, and I just wanted to give a quick shout-out to our most recent reviewer here on iTunes. And that reviewer is Scott Gill, and he gave us a great five-star review, and I just wanted to say thank you to him. It means a lot that you would spend that time. Uh, real quickly, go in there and give us a review there on iTunes. Guys, if you're not an Apple user... Don't worry, got you covered as well. You can find the shows on Stitcher, TuneIn, Spreaker, SoundCloud, Windows Phone. Of course, you can stream and download the MP3 file from the website, and you can also grab the RSS link as well. Now, Will, I know you know how important this is for the network, but that's Patreon. And being a Patreon and being a Patreon member of the network, um, if you want to have any information about how you can support keeping all these shows coming to each week, go to patreon.com slash trek fm um, we have some goals that we would like to reach we've got milestone contribution levels for you and they come with some great perks in fact my associate producers here on the show they get the show early and so things like that you can get some exclusive content that we are working very hard on we've got some great things coming down the pipeline honestly if i told you everybody who was working on it would murder us uh, me until I, uh, we're ready to let you know. But we've got some amazing things coming. So just go to patreon.com slash trekfm and check out everything. I really do want to say a special thank you to my associate producer, Ken Tripp, for all of his support on the network and being an associate producer here. Norm is now the executive producer along with me on the network. And so whereas he used to be associate producer, I still want to thank him. I appreciate him for all he's done for me. And really this show, it's its how we met, and it's met a lot that he's given me so much support over this last year of creating this show. If you would like to contact us, guys, I would love to hear your memories of Jurassic Park. I'd love to hear about your memories that we talked last week about the Clone Wars with Nick. Um, we've talked about Tomorrowland. We have so many things I would love to hear from you guys. Send us your contact. I'd love to be able to have a mailbag show for the 602 and, and maybe do a mail supplemental where we just talked about your questions about some of your favorite things. Just do that at trek.fm slash contact. Leave us a voicemail. Go to the sidebar on the show page. Or go to speakpipe.com slash trek.fm. Of course, we're on Twitter at trek.fm. Facebook at facebook.com slash trek.fm. And I don't know, Will. Um, should we tell them about the place where they should have a conversation with us all day every day uh, i think we should it's the babel conference which is which is our dedicated facebook listeners group so it's a closed group we only 
advertise it on the shows here. So we just want to have our listeners there continuing the discussions that we have on our shows. It's a great place where the hosts talk, our listeners talk. We talk about everything from Star Trek, obviously, but also all sorts of topics. Uh, that's everything related to geeks, everything that 602 covers. So it's just been a really great place for some really great discussion that is intelligent, but also very respectful too. And I do want to say thank you to all you guys who join us in the Babel Conference. It's been a blast getting to talk to y'all. Well, Andy, I am so excited that you guys are a part of the network now. Um, tell everybody where they can find you on the show, and then, of course, online as well. Well, um, I just started DS9, so if you'd like to uh, see me first time track DS9, you can check that out on Twitter, at First Time Trek. Um, you can also find out more about uh, my podcast, Women at Warp, which is now a Trek FM joint. Um, you can also uh, check us out at our website, womenatwarp.com. And Will, how about you? So you can find me every week uh, with Norman Lau on Warp 5, which is our dedicated Enterprise podcast, where we talk everything about Enterprise and Annex 01. And you can also, of course, find me in the Babel Conference, our dedicated listeners group on Facebook. You can also tweet me at, at Will underscore Win. It's spelled N-G-U-Y-E-N, just to talk Trek and also to talk about any content you like to see uh, Trek FM talk about. Well, guys, you can find me on Twitter at MattRushing02. You can find me on the Orb with Christopher Jones talking exclusively about Deep Space Nine. You can also find me on Literary Treks with Dan, where we talk about the books and the comics of Star Trek, interview authors, it's so much fun. And then I have my own personal blog where I do movie reviews, reviews of books, other things like that at 42lifeinbetween.wordpress.com. Well, thank you so much for joining us. And y'all come back now, you hear? 